Hello and welcome to Historical Friction. My name is Alice Proctor. I'm an art historian, writer and educator and this is a podcast about pop culture, history and online collections databases. For this episode I'm joined by Madeleine Odant and we're talking about a Hallmark film which is this is actually the first time I've ever watched a Hallmark Christmas movie so that was an experience called A Timeless Christmas. Hi Madeleine. Hi Alice, I'm Madeline and I have a background in museums work. I worked in a historic house in the deep south of the US for several years. Uh, with it, it was a historic house operating sort of as an estate home with uh, an attached museum. Um, I came over here, went into slightly more museums and collections work. And I also have a fondness for romance novels and romance fiction and have quite a lot of opinions on that too. So I don't watch too many Hallmark films, but I've got a lot of feelings about them. Absolutely. And that's why I asked you to do this episode with me. Firstly, because of the historical, um, historic house kind of element. And I've worked in uh, museums and sort of I guess one that you could call a stately home rather than historic houses quite in that way. I've also never done any costumed interpretation work and I feel like I should just get that out there to begin with. But I definitely associate you with being kind of connoisseur of the romance genre. So I thought that you'd be a good person to talk to you about the tropes that this film hits and especially the ones that it misses. Absolutely, because yeah, there is there is quite a lot of that, and there was quite a lot of uh, screaming at the television while we were watching it. Firstly, <laughs> I'm so sorry for making you watch this film. Um, <laughs> like normally, the films that I do on this podcast, I feel like the past few episodes, I've been talking about how bad they are, but this one was really like irredeemably not even very fun. It was just very boring. Gosh, I think this is the first film in a really long time I've had to get up and leave the room for a few minutes um, and just listen to it from the hallway. <laughs> Because it was that cringe. Uh, yeah. It so was... good work. Good good work on finding this oh, one. Oh, you're welcome. Um, so I actually found this because there have been a bunch of historical interpreters tweeting about it, and particularly the fact that it takes place in a historic house museum. Um, and there are some choices made in how that's represented. But the basic outline of the film is that a man accidentally comes forward in time from 1903 to roughly the present day and wakes up in the museum that has now is what his house has been turned into. And so he has this hundred year time slip and has to try and work out where he is, what's happening, um, and decide if he wants to go back in time or not. Obviously, he immediately meets and falls in love with the director of the museum, who also does costume interpretation and has a PhD and is interviewing for a job at a university at the time. Um, there's a lot going on here. There's, there's kind of a lot, and I'm actually really jealous of her career path, if we're honest. Uh, that, was, that would be nice. Yeah. So... Her name is Megan. His name is Charles. Megan has somehow done an entire PhD on Charles, walked into a job as the director of his house museum, um, but still somehow finds time to dress up as the housekeeper and take people on guided tours. Right. And that was that was bizarre to me as, as sort of the first thing. And with with really small museums, you do get kind of quite a lot of crossover between roles, you know, I, I ran a small museum for a couple of years and I did spend quite a lot of time down on the floor because it's it's a small organization. You do, everyone, everyone fills in all the roles, but at a historic house, especially one of 
that size, they had at least seven or eight staff um, routinely visible. You are not going to have the museum director out on the floor because it just the sheer amount of time that would take up, you know, if they're giving, oh, let's see, an hour long tour, that's eight tours a day. That's there's there's no capacity to do the actual work of the museum. So that's bullshit. I mean, first and foremost, it's total bullshit that she would have time to do this. One yeah. thing that is a bit confusing is whether this was like a year round setup or if they only do tours at Christmas or what. Yeah. That's fair. It did. Well, it did sort of the way they presented it to me, it seemed like it was like a Christmas special, but of an ongoing event. You know, they made a few references to. So so part of the premise is that the actor that they've got playing Charles uh, has quit or whatever. So when the real Charles appears, they think that that's a new actor who's just been cast very well. Um, but the way they sort of did that did imply to me that they were doing the tours year round but just with a Christmas special, yeah. uh, which does line up with how a lot of historic houses run tours. They'll do the same thing and then just alter alter what's on offer very slightly for the seasons, which is largely a good business model. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, I used to work as a tour guide with school groups and I never did costume work, um, but some of my colleagues did take every opportunity to dress up. And there was also a professional um, character actor who would come in and play like four different roles, depending on what tours we were running at the time. Um, so it wasn't sort of surprising to me that this might be the model, but the way that it was presented in the film, I mean, more than anything, this film was very clearly written by people that don't work in historic houses or oh, heritage at all. <laughs> Yeah, well, and I think I think that's what got me even right from the beginning was just the sheer disrespect for artifacts and object handling that happened. And okay, so the one bit I liked was when Charles wakes up and his entire desk is covered in like plexiglass, like they they preserved how his desk was abandoned because yeah, we had that exact thing where I used to work. You know, there was the the founder of the university's desk, but everything was sort of covered. But as a museum curator, I would not be pulling up the floorboards, finding a diary that's been abandoned for 120 years, and then just like blowing dust off it with my mouth. That is A, disgusting, B, horrific, and C, extra disgusting, and D, like I would be photographing the shit out of that before I touched it, let alone like, uh, there are forms to fill out. <laughs> oh, so what happens to kind of create the time slip is that Charles has bought a stunningly ugly Christmas clock. It's always <laughs> referred to as a Christmas clock, which isn't a thing. It's just like a yeah. jauntily decorated clock with some really shoddy engraving on it that he's bought as a gift for his fiance. And it's got some little rhyme on it about how you wind it at a Christmas moon, which is not a thing that exists. You will be taken to meet your true love. <laughs> Yeah, and I think that alone, okay, so like that alone pisses me off because they they are very clear about what date. It's December 18th, 1903, and it takes two seconds to Google that shit and see that that was not a full moon. Um, <laughs> literally two seconds. And then the entire premise is that the Christmas moon is a blue moon that happens around Christmas or on Christmas Eve or whatever, and that is just chronologically impossible because a blue moon is the second full moon in a Gregorian calendar month which is a like completely irrelevant to the way the world works it's just a random little 
thing, but that's a whole nother. But then you can't, if, if full moons happen 27.75 days apart or whatever. You can't have one on the 18th and you definitely can't have one on the 24th. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, it's just not a thing. Like that can't happen. <laughs> so it's, it, it's just a, oh, it's just a stupid premise, which it's not even that it's stupid. It's a good idea. And then it's one of those where you're like, well, this is a good idea. I'm going to need to alter it to make it actually possible. Yeah. Anyways. I think I think this is where like a lot of any romance that involves time travel you're going to have to sort of come to terms with a lot of impossibility and that's fine and I am absolutely fine with that and like I read like six outlander books you know right. I'm willing to yeah. put up with a lot of inaccuracy well, and, and and me too like and I think I think that's half the fun of the romance genres you can look at something and say that's completely impossible and and so I'd be quite willing almost to that the christmas moon thing slip the one thing that bothers me about it all is that they're so insistent on it being 1903 for no reason and I guarantee you you know if you've got uh whatever 20 year period and the the whole storyline would have worked whether it was 1903 or 1923 it wouldn't have mattered they could have very easily googled found a full moon and then just done that year that day like it it's just it's that's the tiny thing it's it's when the tiny things that are so easy to change don't line up that's when it pisses me off because it's just lazy absolutely and and romance shouldn't be lazy I know it's got a really bad stereotype but good romance is like any good genre like it's if it's done well it is so so good and it's the people who are being really lazy and just trying to make money that give the entire genre a bad rep in my opinion no for sure and this is where like this film fell down on the fact that I don't think the actors had any chemistry. The characters didn't have any chemistry. Oh. And, you know, they spent, what, four days together and decided to be in love forever? And Yeah, which is, you know, it, it took my husband and I like four months to start dating. So, you know, like, it, it's just not. And, you know, and again, it's romance. I can give that. Uh, I can give that a pass. I can give the whole, you know, love at first sight thing a pass. It is the... um the fact that everything that he likes about her is something that somebody from his time period would be shocked by, let alone, and this is, this is, I think, you know, from the beginning, when he first bumps into her, despite him being from 1903, despite him showing kind of all of the, you know, oh my gosh, you're um, bending over to kiss the hand at an introduction, he makes no comment on her being a woman with a PhD or interviewing for a job at a university or running a bloody museum. All of these things that a man from 1903 transposed into 2020 would be shocked by. Yeah. It's hitting the, the what I call the decorative tropes, the like window dressing tropes, the, oh my gosh, my corset is too tight tropes. Yeah. And not actually touching on the realities of it. So, so you also see him come in and meet the black sheriff and yeah we definitely need to come back to that okay yeah I mean basically they they don't clarify ever exactly where the movie is set which is another hallmark trope you know but based on just the tradition shown and um what I know of various parts of the U.S. having lived in way too many of them um it seems to me to be set in kind of like a just above the Mason Dixon. So I, I don't know, Virginia, West Virginia, somewhere around there. There's no way in hell that someone from 1903 would come up and not 
have opinions about racial diversity. Um, right. We're talking about a man who makes all his money on a steel mill in 1903. Like this is yeah. an industrial town. He is an industrialist. He's yes. at the beginning of the 20th century. And at no point is, and obviously like this is a Hallmark film. So expectations are very, very low, but there is no allusion to either the sexual politics or the racial politics that he's bringing with him. And this right. is something that, this is one thing that I find really difficult about historical films when it's historic character comes into the present because mm -hmm. you have to deal with that kind of culture shock and you never really touch it in an adequate way. Right, well, and I think it's it's something where I, I really appreciate the effort Hallmark is going to include diversity and in a non-tokenized fashion. You know, they're not having a token black person, a token Chinese person. They're having a fully diverse cast and I really appreciate that. But at the same point with something like this, you can't and shouldn't pretend that it was just fine. You can't pretend that people in the past weren't racist. You can't really pretend that people in the present aren't racist, but you definitely can't, you know, bring someone up and not touch on the fact that they would have seen this differently. And, and that can be shown. You could have had Charles come up, say something racist and everyone else be like, no, that shit's not okay. But you can't just sweep it under the rug and pretend it didn't exist. It's it. That is what really frustrates me about people showing history is, you know, racism has always existed. It still existed. And if you just pretend it doesn't, you are you are making a film that makes a modern white audience feel good because they can say, oh, look at me watching this diverse film and I'm going to ignore the lived experiences of everyone and I, I do appreciate that, like, for once, we don't have a woman going back in time and having to choose between, like, having rights and some guy who probably doesn't wash very often. Um, but the consequence of that is that we have this we have this figure coming through to the present day and we don't yeah. deal with that at all. Um, one of the examples I can think of where I think this is actually done quite well is the Sleepy Hollow TV show has a character waking up yeah. in the present day and it's a deeply flawed program in so many ways, but the protagonists are a white man and a black woman. And that's something that they address right from the beginning. His first question to her is to ask if she's enslaved. And it's something that then plays into their relationship in terms of coming to trust each other and understand each other. And that is, I think, a rare example of a show that did actually like take that from the beginning. Well, that's, and, and so I've, I've never seen it and I don't watch a lot of television, but the the museum I used to work at, the historic house, um, is in the Deep South. It is not a slave plantation. Um, it never was. It was the home of a woman who, in 190, I'm going to screw this up, 1902 or 1905. Please don't check. Um, founded a university, which obviously is shocking at the time, but was incredible. And so it was it was her home. And then when she, you know, eventually died, um, it you know, it's, it's owned by the university and became a museum of the history of the university. But, you know, her in, in 1902 or whatever, she was already 40. And so her family, while they hadn't been slave owners or plantation owners, is coming from that deeply racist and they had black servants. And you can imagine what that's like in the South at the time. So in the current day, when we're interpreting this it was you know a, a huge 
thing that the museum has to come to terms with is the fact that part of the museum is Aunt Martha's cottage, Aunt Martha being the black cook cleaner friend of Martha Barry, whose home it was. And, and it is true that, you know, from what we can tell from letters, from journals, from diaries, from the fact that they're buried right by each other, which was unheard of at the time, they were good friends. Uh, they were, but we still know there was still going to be a racial dynamic at play there. So it's it's something that has to be kind of consistently examined and, and dealt with. And every historic house that I've ever been to has some version of that story. Now, whether or not they actually deal with it or they ignore it is a different matter, but historic house of this time would have had to touch on if this if this was a real museum this house in the film they would have they would have had to deal with that especially because they have actors of color playing um several characters throughout their their little tour and you see the characters that these actors are playing right at the beginning when we're back in Mm -hmm. 1903 and they are all white and so when you come through to the present day element of the film and some of them are played by people of color, that's something that's sort of implied within the narrative, this, this disjunction. Um, and you see the confusion from Charles when mm-hmm. he wakes up in the present day and he doesn't recognize anybody. And that's something that, yeah, again, the film just doesn't have room or interest in engaging with. And this is a film that's based on a book. So I don't know if the book dealt with this anymore. I haven't yeah. had time to read it. I don't know that I want to read it. (laughs) Yeah, that is true. Um. (laughs) But there's a, there's an opportunity and it can Mm -hmm. be done very subtly for a film to engage with the culture of its characters. So one of the things that I wanted to talk about is the um, way that Megan then takes Charles like clothes shopping and introduces him to the modern day and stuff. And I know you have some thoughts about this. Okay, well, the one, the first one that absolutely sent me, and this is because I, I love, I love food and I love the history of food. And it's probably one of my favorite, like, little side hobbies within my career. Um, pizza existed in the US in 1903. All like it just, it, it just, it's been around since like the 19th century. As soon as Italian immigrants started coming to the US, you had pizza. And yes, it, you know, wasn't necessarily what we'd recognize but he would go into a, 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 he would walk into a restaurant and see a pizza and recognize it. Like it, it would maybe be different than, but he would fucking recognize it. Concept is it. the same. And I just, I just had to get that off my chest. Like he would know what a pizza was. <laughs> <laughs> he would not be, oh, what is this delicious meal? Okay, first he can bloody read. He read the menu, presumably. He would know what it was called. And all of that aside, he would recognize a pizza. Okay, I'm done. Yeah, okay, Um, yes. (laughs) My personal personal version of that is that at one point they sing We Wish You a Merry Christmas and he complains. Oh my God, yes. About the fact that he doesn't know the song. That song has been recorded and written about since the 18th century. It was was documented for 200 years before this guy was even born. Yeah, well, and, and I, yet along those lines, I will say, one of the songs that they were singing as part of their tour. Um, I can't remember what it was. I'd have to watch it again. Don't watch it again. I, yeah, I won't watch it again, let's be honest. Uh, but the tune has changed. And yeah, and I know this because being in a historic house museum, we actually used to do this as part of one of our tours where we would sing Christmas carols 
with the tombs that they had in the 19th century because that's a because a historic house educates yeah Ugh, they just missed a golden opportunity <laughs> to like actually and and this this isn't like difficult to find knowledge like this is not unique something that only historians or academics know which they could afford to have one historic consultant on staff but even if they didn't this shit is like googleable yeah. it yeah and I mean, I don't know exactly where they filmed, but I'm pretty sure they filmed in a historic house. Like, I'm pretty sure it was in Canada. Okay. The fact is that if they filmed in a historic house, presumably there would have been a supervisor from the staff at that historic house there to at least say, please don't bring hot drinks into the historic living room. Yeah, well, exactly. Oh my God. It's like that one scene from The Mummy where like, he's like watching the papyrus in an open candle flame and you're just like, what the... F-? But then the other... Okay, sidetrack. But towards the end of the film when she finds the Christmas clock and then turns to some secretary at the university and is like, I have an idea. And then is shown walking into the house with this clock just like in her arms or whatever. And it's like, no, that's not how artifact loans work on on 18 different levels. That's not how artifact loans work. And like, yes, okay, I can forgive carrying a clock really close to your body because if you've got a heavy artifact, that is the safest way to do it usually. But that's... the sheer amount of fucking paperwork and like just uh no that's no no one of my absolute favorite scenes in this is where they decide to go looking for the clock and the assistant director of the museum takes them down into the basement and you can see there's just all this shit that hasn't made it onto the displays and he's like i spent like two years down here cataloging everything that was the one bit where I was like, I think, I think this is even in my text messages where I was like, they got one thing right. That is exactly what an artifact store looks like. It's chaos. It's utter chaos. And I didn't see what database they were using, but I kind of really wanted to because I could, every, every database system is entirely mm-hmm. messed up. But also the one bit of that I slightly disagree with, it was, he was like, if it's not in my database, it doesn't exist. And I call bullshit on that because every single museum has like a thousand things at least that aren't in the database and they just like show up eventually and you're like everyone's got a mystery cupboard everyone's got a like weird shelf (laughs) everyone yeah exactly and and sometimes like well it goes both ways sometimes it's like oh this artifact is on the shelf and no one checks it for 20 years and then it isn't um or it goes the other way where everyone just assumes that somebody else has accessioned the artifact and next thing you know it's been a a century and it's and that and to the point where there's a whole like phrase of like found in collections for we have no idea where this came from but I guess it's ours yeah so I did I did actually love that because yeah the sheer chaos in that basement store was like yes this is accurate at the same point um nobody who's actually ever worked in a museum would be like well it's not in my database I would be like it's not in my database therefore we have not a hope in hell yeah. in finding it unless we ask some of our volunteers who've been here for 50 years because they probably yeah. know there's always that one volunteer who's written their own DIY rival yeah. database on like post-it notes <laughs> who knows more about the collection than any of the actual staff yes and they're they're incredibly useful they're wonderful people those volunteers because like you can just point at anything and one of one of my projects at my last place was 
yeah, getting some of our volunteers to sit and go through the database and add notes on artifacts. And it was the stuff that came out with was like things that we would never know on no record, but they're like, oh, this, you know, like we'd know it belonged to so-and-so and they'd be like, this is where it sat in their shop and kids used to do this and blah. Wonderful mm -hmm. shit. It's like, that stuff needs to be recorded because otherwise uh, it's going to be lost when when and if um, those volunteers ever have to stop yeah. working for but it's um I can't remember how we got here was the just the absolute audacity of a guy saying if it's not in my database it doesn't exist which is just unacceptable behavior I, I was, so the same historic owls that I used to work at, um, remember I was, I got sent to, we were sending like a chest of drawers out on loan to another part of the university. It wasn't going far. Um, so I got sent to like clean it and, and it was supposed to be empty. So I got through cleaning it and I find like a pile of handkerchiefs and they had like no numbers. So I text the curator and I was like, Hey, like, do you want me to like keep these in here, put them into store? They're not accessioned. And she was like, where did you find those? And I was like, in the, in the chest of drawers, in the, in the secret drawer that's like under the other drawer. And she was like, in the what? <laughs> oh my God. And this chest had been in the museum since the founder of the university died. So going 70 years at this point and no one had. So literally like the, the shit you find in museums. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible. I worked in a museum where we had a lot of like very random little bits in the collection that had been sort of donated by classic kind of accumulation of stuff. Yeah. Um, and it was a weird building because the um, the original building had been destroyed, but several of the rooms had been recreated within this new building. And so we had a yeah. lot of stuff that was sort of vaguely in the place that it had been historically, but we didn't really know yeah. anything. And a number yeah. of the people who had worked there as volunteers had done their own research on stuff. And so we just had this big binder that was like, anytime a volunteer got really obsessed with something, they would just write their own little information about it. And it was this unbelievably chaotic folder of like all of the coins in the collection, all of the chairs, all of the random bits of furniture, but it was done with so much care by these volunteers. And partially this was because we used to get a lot of student placements, um, but so mm. many of our volunteers were like classic older retired time on their hands who yeah. would just go down a rabbit hole of a particular style of chair and write these new information sheets. I'm fairly certain none of it was ever digitized. I'm pretty sure the entire collections database of that museum was hard copy. Which is a shame because that's, you know, you think like at some point someone's going to come in there and want to do research on something and it's like all of this has been done and it should be documented. Um, but yeah, like, you know, we had, we had this exact thing at the last place um, I worked before my current job. And yeah, I mean, we would just find documents or things that um, people had worked on and, and, and it was, it was, yeah, trying to get all of that information into our actual digital catalog and database so that it didn't get lost, so that it wasn't just folders floating around. Um, mm -hmm. Which, which is a shame because I think a lot of object databases don't really always have, have the room or the formatting for extra information like that. And so, so I mean, for example, you know, when they're pulling up um, information in this, in this film on, on clocks and trying to find the Christmas clock and they're, 
you know, they're, they're trying different search terms basically to try and see if they can find that. But because databases don't have room for, you know, this clock was purchased by the owner as a gift for his fiance, but he disappeared before they could give it. Like that's stuff like that just doesn't slot into the catalog number. Where was this object made, found, purchased? Blah. Like it just doesn't fit. And I think that's, a sh I think it's the, it's the story behind artifacts that makes mm. them interesting. And that is something that, I mean, I did, I don't think they did this on purpose. So I won't give them that credit, but that was something I liked about the film is, oh, this, these objects or the snowflake yeah. necklace, like, where he he gives her a snowflake necklace that was originally intended for his fiance. Um, that is, which is a whole nother can of worms, but whatever. Um, that is something where, yeah, that's what makes artifacts like that special is not the fact that, you know, that necklace isn't gonna be worth anything. It's not gonna be valuable, um, but it gives the artifacts reality. It gives them a story. It's like you know these these objects actually existed in people's lives and had meaning to them in you know in the same way that if someone made a museum about my life there'd be 8000 corgi artifacts and people would look at that and say you know why is this why is this important this is another stuffed corgi and it's kind of irrelevant but to me all of those come with the story of you know so and so gave this to me or this came from here or art an artifact without interpretation I think I've, I've said before elsewhere is like just a hoard it's just stuff and if it doesn't have real if it doesn't have a story attached to it if, if it doesn't have meaning attached mm. to it it's it's pointless why why bother why are we keeping it and to say one moment in this film yeah. that did actually make me a little bit emotional was right at the end where she tells her parents she's not taking the job at the university because she wants to keep doing education work at the museum and doing living history stuff and I got a little like yes this is valid this is important yeah and, and actually I mean and this is a sidestep but something I love there is that they didn't have the parents be like no they had the parents be like yay you're our child we love you if that's what you want then like go for it and that I was like, fine. I think probably because I was just not in the mood for like emotional drama um, that night. And so that, that was one of those ones where I feel like they actually, they did this twice where they took a trope and flipped it and it was like really well done. So with that, you kind of, with that example, you expected the parents to be like, our whole family has been university teachers and blah, blah, blah. And how dare you give up, you know, the family goal. And mm. they didn't. And I thought, that was just a really good change of expectations. Mm. And then the other one, and I thought this, this especially was shocking for romance is that, so Charles, after he disappears, his original fiance um, goes off and marries his original rival. And then not only marries him, but like they have a good life and do a ton of philanthropic work um, for the town, stuff that it exists throughout into the present day and then when he discovers this he's not losing his shit and being oh my gosh how could Eliza abandon me blah 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 he's like holy shit they actually did good things I admire that and that's is a part of the reason he decides not to go back in time is there's none of this I need to go win my fiance back and blah 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 there's a she had a really good life and did good things. And I have an opportunity to do good things here and I'm going to stay. And she's also seemed to have married someone she actually liked. Yeah. Yeah. Because they were, they were marrying for convenience or for clout or whatever. 
which is, you know, a perfectly acceptable reason to marry someone, but it's not, you know, perhaps mm. the bet, or it's not, it's certainly not true yeah. love. And he seemed to recognize that and stick with, if you're going to take a romance trope and change it, I thought that was a really good way to do it. And I, I think that's what I, I really love this with romance. Um, when you have how you expect the story to end and then it slightly mm. flips. And so the person I was, I was watching this with, um, we spent the first 60 minutes of the movie arguing over whether the couple were ultimately going to end up in present day or 1903. And I said from the beginning, present day. And, and that was, I think, the only way that they could have a happy ending. And yet they did it. They actually did the ending really well, as much as I didn't like the film. Yeah, yeah I, I did half expect it to be one of those ones where she's like, well, I'll come back in time with you sort of thing. Yeah. And, and the way they set up her character to be so obsessed with this history and so obsessed with him in particular yeah. made me think there was a very decent chance that they could have turned it around and said like, yeah. oh, we'll go back to 1903 together and save the factory and all of that shit. And yeah, I'm glad they didn't because it's nice for once to see a woman in a historical time slip romance not have to give up all of her right. That's actually why I think, why I was like, no, they're gonna stay here is because they made a big deal of him being an orphan and having no family and whatnot. And she did have a family and we see her being close to that family. They, you know, they go to hers for Christmas Eve or whatever. That, that's why I was like, oh good, I really hope they stay in present day because of she has a family um but it is that was it it is unusual it's not the way these stories normally go and so it's really nice to to see that happen definitely what was the budget of this museum how much money did they have oh my god do not get me started when they they okay first let's see they we only see like maybe 10 rooms in the house but they I mean they imply that okay they have a lot of weddings and events and that's why they have some hotel type rooms which fair that is a good way to make money but you are not on that budget and with tours that you can't charge that much for you are not going to have the budget to have a staff Christmas party where everyone is dressed up in historic costumes but like fancy historic costumes um, you're not going to have the budget for, I mean, for the, the the cars and the drinks and the do not get me started on Christmas trees with glitter in a historic house. I will throw something. Oh, my God. Truly, that was the one thing I think I absolutely lost my shit at because the I tell you, like, historic houses, anything and glitter is going mm. to be the end of your life. Um I think the moment that made me really like actually squawk was when the assistant director of the museum said he wanted champagne towers um, in the historic galleries. And like, no, 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 no. And, and also like the fact that they were serving tour guests cookies in the historic house. I'm like, okay, even if your carpets aren't original, even if they're replicas, even whatever, no. Rodents. Yeah, rodents, bugs, any, uh, just, just crumbs, 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 problem. <laughs> I like, no, I, so I, we used to host a ton of wedding receptions outside mm. uh, and, and the weather is more predictable so you could do this, but 
we would open the house for tours to the wedding reception as the couples coming over from the church mm-hmm. because American weddings are slightly different format than British ones. You know, you would have a champagne reception out front. And then if guests wanted to come through the house, they left their drinks outside. They left their food outside. Like the, the receptions in the garden and the house is open for like, for seeing. Yeah, the I think once we had the president of the university had like a fundraising dinner inside the historic house. And when I tell you that was the most like stressful night of, I was assistant curator by that point. And it was the most stressful night of our lives because like the carpet was not original, it was a replica. Um, The table linens were replicas, but original table, the original chairs, like the sheer amount of just stress with Mm. eating and drinking in this house with like, the original wallpaper because do not get me started on stuff spilling on walls like Mm -hmm. the stress I cannot imagine anyone putting them through that putting themselves through that willingly for like sugar cookies on a Christmas tour no no I I so the last museum that I worked at the one with the reconstructed galleries um we did weddings and parties all the time inside the museum and I worked those events I was one of the museum representatives that would sort of be there to make sure no one touched the paintings no one put a drink on a table that kind of thing and we would have a couple of catering companies that would come in and would set up the tables and stuff so that they never used any of the historic furniture but we had so many rules around like where you were allowed to stand with a drink you couldn't walk with a drink you had to stay seated we had stuff about the types of canapes you could have we had a total ban on red wine and anything that could stain we and this is what the champagne tower thing reminded me of is that we had to if you wanted to open anything sparkling you had to go into like the kitchen behind the regular kitchen yeah and like stand in a tiny tiny corner to pop the bottles open so that you didn't accidentally take out a wall (laughs) Yes. Well, okay. And so at the one point in this film, when they're preparing for like the the staff Christmas Eve party, and they're trying different historic recipes. And that's when you get that really tropey, like, oh, here, taste this and see if it's okay. And she sticks a spoon in his mouth, which is never as sexy in real life as it seems in films, because it's no. just always like, oh, it's too hot. Or, oh, you're kind of like tilting in the anyways. Yeah, someone always ends up drooling. It's never quite as hot as you think it's going to be. Delightful they're cooking in the historic kitchen with historic copperware what the fuck like this made me so mad okay first that's a massive electrical hazard and just dumb and second (laughs) no it's literally it's set up it's not even like a historic kitchen that is been subtly reworked to have modern catering no it's it's a straight up historic kitchen yeah like i would i okay First, you're not going to be able to cook modern recipes the same way in there because just every, it's, it's the difference between cooking on like, they're doing recipes made for a modern hob on basically an aga and that's, it does not, it doesn't work. It doesn't translate. Yeah, you can't set an aga to 400 degrees Fahrenheit. That's not, even if you, if you are working in a historic place and you're making a tour out of cooking in the historic kitchen, you are going to prep that shit elsewhere and then bring it for the, tour you're not actually going to do it in Mm. 
I've met a couple of people that have done cooking demonstrations as part of like living history work and reenactment stuff. In that case, you've got like a modern version of an old fashioned looking kitchen, you know, underneath your wooden tabletop, you've got a gas stove and it's a very different setup. So this is, so this is, this actually reminded me slightly of um, where I used to work had all of the bedrooms have en suites, which is kind of unheard of for a 1920s house. Um, but the owner was just really keen on everyone having bathrooms, which is cool. Um, but it means this house has, I want to say five bathrooms. Occasionally, um, you know, you'd have, so the museum is like, you know, a quarter of a mile, half a mile from the historic house. So we'd have visitors mm -hmm. like, oh, well, if I need to use the toilet, why can't I use one in the house? And we're like, because they don't flush because the plumbing is 1920s America. And like, that is not a good idea. Oh my God. The electrical wiring in the house is antique and it's, it's kind of the, you know, so the, the lights that we generally use for tours and stuff are like, all you know have been rewired and they're all hooked to like a control panel but you can't just walk into a room in the house and plug a hoover in because there's the the because the sockets are different so a lot of a lot of what irritated me was they're talking about how the house has been preserved in its exact form since 1903 and it's like well clearly it hasn't because you've got christmas trees with lights plugged into that wall you've got tvs in your hotel bedrooms upstairs like yeah which is also just and and you've got you've got a stove with temperature settings so yeah and no security because when she can't find somewhere for him to stay she just walks into the museum in the middle of the night and dumps him in a hotel right. room to be fair she's the director although although i have met a lot of museum directors that do not know how to work the keys or fire alarms for the museum right. at which they work that is true that is true I think yeah like I um the the museum I used to run so in the in the last couple months of lockdown was um like oh I'm a night person so I was like oh I'll stay here until 8 or 9 p.m working because that is my jam you know so I can totally see someone the, that that panned out to me but at the same time you never see her say oh you're you're staying in this historic house hotel overnight but I've got to set all the alarms so don't go through this door you're going to set everything off which is a thing that uh, like I remember we used to when we were we were prepping to open a, a major exhibit once and so the head curator and I were working in the historic house at 2 a.m because again we were both night people and we were on a crunch um, I'm not saying this is good working practice I'm just saying <laughs> what we were doing uh, but you know for security while we were in in the building we still had all the external alarms set so her, I think, well, husband now, fiance at the time or something like that, um, brought us coffee at like three or 4 a.m. And we had to go disable the whole system so that he could actually bring us coffee. And then we just made him stay and help us. Mm -hmm. um, good man. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, there's, there's so many little nuances like that that wouldn't have taken much extra effort to show. But it's kind of, it's kind of along the same lines as the snowflake necklace, which we originally see being in a locked display cabinet. And he just like, then suddenly has it in his hand and gives it to the curator. And she doesn't make any comment about like, how did you get that out of the locked exhibit case? Because that's what I would do. I would be like, what the, what the fuck are you doing? What the fuck are you doing? This is an artifact, which is, yeah, is just really, really poor object handling throughout this entire bloody film. And 
at every at every given point like oh there's just no the fact that uh, at one point he picks up his old like toothpaste case and squeezes it and I'm like no he just takes he just takes his toiletry box out of the cabinet downstairs and it's like oh I found my toothbrush it's fine yeah and like okay first that I mean that was funny that was funny because yeah you do not want to use century-old um toothpaste but how did he just why did she just let him squeeze that why did she also also the leather would have like degraded beyond any point by that like toothpaste is kind of acidic that's just not a thing that was going to happen that oof 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 one trope that this film does is the references to historic figures so that you know he's from the past Right at the beginning, he's talking about how he's heard that there are these brothers that are trying to invent a flying machine, which is such a classic, like, clanging trope. Um, And later he talks about how he's actually met H.G. Wells and, you know, they had dinner together or something. Yeah. I love this as a trope. I think when it's done well, it's absolutely delightful. Like, to me, there is nothing funnier than someone Mm -hmm. accidentally letting slip that they know this historic figure. Yeah which is is excellently done. I do not think this was because it was just awkward. And, and that's, you know, kind of the whole, the whole film, the whole script was, was just sort of stiflingly awkward, but also because at the same point that he's, so at the same point you have him talking about knowing H.G. Wells and everything, you also have him, you know, coming in and, and not having this, not making any comments about the fact that there's a female director running the museum and those happen in the same sentence or fail to happen in the same sentence. And especially H.G. Wells at the time was sort of seen as something of a first wave feminist. A lot of his books were had female protagonists, which was unusual. Also, I'm pretty sure H.G. Wells was British. So him uh, meeting this person in like like in the southern United States is just slightly unrealistic but not impossible just slightly unrealistic (laughs) um so so you would think if he was actually a friend of H.G. Wells he would have views that he would express and Mm. and and it would have been within character for him to do so so why didn't he it's just kind of it's just slightly lazy um in a hilarious combination of the clanging historical figure references and what the fuck is the budget of this museum right at the end she talks about how she wants holographic characters from history as part of the interpretation which also (laughs) is is super funny because yeah so I um I used to work at a museum in the UK that was a um is a is a stately home and has this has has holographic figures in in part of the sort of museum exhibit in the cellars and it's really cool, but also like, yeah, hella expensive. And um, and not like, not something to just, you know, they're, they have her throw that in there. It's like, a, oh, this is something that would be cool, but not talk about why it would be relevant or useful to the museum. Yeah. And so you think if they've already got live actor interpretations of all of these characters why are you adding the holographic except as a like look at this expensive stuff that we're going to be doing and yet at no point does she talk about where the hell she's going to get that funding from and american museums have like thank god for the the you know heritage lottery fund in the uk um which we all know the sector is broke as shit but Mm. at least there's something there's none of that shit in the U.S. like every museum I know in the U.S. is broke to hell Mm. um 
unless they are externally funded by wealthy donors, uh, mm. which most of them are. In that, and and they very much aren't because they're only wealthy donors, unless they're funded by like the money from the estate from when he disappeared. I don't really know. Stop. Um, made very clear. I want to know. I want to see the financial records of this institution. Me, me too. I really do, especially like, yeah, how they're. I want to know how if they converted the whole thing into a museum and cataloged every artifact in the database and run it as a hotel and clean at all, how the hell nobody ever pulled up the carpet in his office to see the very obviously cut out floorboard that the diary was hiding under. Because there is no way, there is literally zero way, no way in hell nobody noticed that. Yeah, Because it was obvious, it wasn't even like, press this awkward panel and something's gonna pop out of the wall, which like, even even then, at some point, somebody is going to find, I say this having just told a story about finding a secret drawer in a chest of drawers. But still. <laughs> but still, the point is, I found it, and it hadn't been 120 years. So, you know, there's no way that, um, that somebody didn't find something, especially something that obvious. Mm. And I think that's kind of, they, they can't they don't seem to be able to decide whether they're doing this as like a good museum or a not good museum. Yeah. <laughs> because they've got some really not wealthy museum practices. Like, okay, yeah. if you've got a really poor museum, I can understand all of that shoddy collections care because you're you're working with the money you have. Even if you've got great staff, if you've only got so much money, everyone's just doing the best they can and none of us can fault that. Mm. But the amount of money that they seem to have, they're going to be able to like pay for a shop vac and mm. to be able to take the carpets up for cleaning. Like, Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, I, I would actually really like to see the financials. Um, I would love a film that was actually set in a museum or a series or something. And that's why it's kind of so frustrating. Like you, they have such a good premise. And I remember being one of those people of like, oh my gosh, time traveler, historic house docent, this could be great. Yeah, I think I think you're right. It's that there's this amazing and really fun dynamic that can happen with this trope of like, yeah. person in the present day meets their historical sort of hero or fascination and they, realize that kind of disillusionment comes with it they tried to take a a really popular romance novel trope and then they tried to stick it into a really popular setting but they didn't like merge the two very well and I think that's that's kind of the problem is you they had a they had a fun idea and then they tried to stick it along a classic formula and it just it just didn't stick absolutely um is there anything that you would like films to do about historic houses or historic museums like what what would you like to see i would really like to see them actually get museum consultants on board for some of this oh shit. boy <laughs> there's a lot of us who are currently underemployed um because of covid and and but also because of covid but just in general because yeah the sector is underfunded and um, there's so much fun to be had. There's so many really great and entertaining things that can be done. I just wish they would hire some people to A, give them ideas, but B, also tell them what is and isn't realistic. And Absolutely. and if, it, if it's something that they want to do and it's not realistic, find a way to make that. Justify that choice. 
exactly like there's there are ways to to accomplish something while still making it realistic you just need Mm. someone who actually knows how the industry works to Mm. have that happen yeah I I mean both of us are available yeah seriously like we have so many thoughts on this I am happy to come in and tell you all the weird shit that you can actually find in museum stores um I did actually consult someone writing a script about um, where the main character was a museum curator um, mm-hmm. called me and was and we went through some things about like whether it would be realistic for this guy to be going to auctions and the kind mm-hmm. of display and like what his academic background would be and that sort of thing and that was amazing fun and I'm always up for that. It is. I think I think also the the thing to recognize is that there's so much there's so many levels and types of museums so something that's realistic at you know, one of the big nationals is going to be very different than what's realistic at a small local museum. So sometimes if you want to get away with a storyline, all you've got to do is pick your museum wisely. And like, I have worked at all of them. So yeah, yeah, like hire us and we will tell you what, what is and isn't realistic and what you can get away with and what you can't get away with. And if you want to get away with something, how to do it. Also, if you want people to tell you how to like, the final thing about this whole thing is that he breaks the clock in a way that would not actually break the fucking clock. And that one just sent me, I was like, if he did that, it would literally change nothing about how the clock functioned, much less allow it to slowly tick out one more minute and then stop. That is not, and yes, I get it's a magical clock, but that's kind of beyond the point. Like (laughs) the last, uh, if you're going to show something where a key part of the is breaking an artifact, talk to someone who knows how to fix artifacts because we also know how to break them as you hire museum people we have time you have money it's a perfect deal there are so many of us um and we've all got opinions and i yeah i would absolutely love that honestly like 90 percent of my desire to make this podcast is that i just want to be i want to be a historical consultant and i want fiction and representations of the past and representations of museum to be better well, there's, there's one romance book I read a while back, I'll send it to you. And I had to stop about one chapter in because they described the museum curator holding um, a, a part of part of a, a mummy. And, um, and then their friend, who's also working in the museum, sneaks up on them for a laugh and they drop it. And I had to stop reading the book, which I'm sure was a wonderful book, but I could not make it past that because I lost my shit that badly. So yeah. seriously hire us and we will just make everything better it's like an editor like any consultant you just they strengthen your story yeah um I've been collecting on the historical friction twitter page I've been collecting people's examples of the worst museum practice they've seen on film and that sort of thing so if you're listening to this and you can think of something please tell us it's been very very funny so far um I think that's everything I think so thank you so much do you want to plug your Twitter? Yeah, you can find me at uh, Old Enough to Say, um, where I talk absolute shit about a wide variety of things, um, one of which is museums, but largely it's absolute chaos. So, hey. Perfect. You can find me, AA Proctor, on Twitter, and the show is at History Friction on Twitter. I'm also on Patreon. I've now got two supporters who I love very, very much. And if you support the show and want to help us keep making things and gradually improve our technical standards, please do that. I would love you very, very much. 
thank you so much for coming on this show. I'm so sorry I made you watch this god-awful film. I am never watching another Christmas film ever again. Until next year. <laughs> Until next year. <laughs>